Shalom, and welcome to Kehilat Rosh Pina, a dynamic, multicultural, and growing Messianic Jewish congregation located in the heart of Oklahoma City and led by Rabbi Michael Weigand. Our goal is to bring you the message of the Word each week from a Jewish perspective and to exalt Messiah Yeshua as Lord and Savior overall. We are a loving congregation made up of both Jew and Gentile, now one in the Messiah, with Shabbat morning services at 10.40 a.m. and various studies throughout the week. Please come and join us next time you are in Oklahoma City. We would love to have you. And now, we hope you enjoy today's message. I'm Kevin. I'm one of the elders. Um, I get a chance to to bring the message occasionally, and I do today. In this week's Torah portion, which is where I drew my message from, as has already been mentioned, is Korach. So let me remind you, this one sort of combines with the previous portion. So let me, let's back up a little bit. Last week, we went through the bad report from the 10 of the 12 spies, if you'll remember. So in Numbers 13, 31 through 33, it says, but the men who had gone up with him, and that's talking about, about Caleb and, and Joshua, said, we are not able to go against these people, for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land from which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours the inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants. The descendants of Anak came from the giants, the Anakim. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. Now, how did the children of Israel respond to this news? Let me remind you. Let's look in Numbers 14, 1 through 4. So all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, if only we had died in the land of Egypt. Very short memories. Or if we had died in this, only if we had died in the wilderness. Why has the Lord brought us out of this land to fall by the sword that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? Well, then Joshua and Caleb, you'll remember, they get up and they try to persuade the children of Israel to follow the Lord, trust the Lord, go into the promised land. And if you'll remember, what was their response? Numbers 14.10. And all the congregation said to stone them with stones. So Moses pleads for the children of Israel, as he often did. And the Lord gives his decision. So, Numbers 14, 29. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in the wilderness, all of you who were numbered according to your entire number, from 20 years old and above. Also, then it continues on down, skipping down into 1434. He goes on for a little bit. According to the number of days in which he spied out the land, 40 days... For each day you shall bear your guilt one year, namely 40 years. And you shall know my rejection. And then he goes on in Numbers 14, 36 through 37. It kind of wraps it up. 
this particular incident. Now the men whom Joseph, uh, Moses sent out to spy the land, who returned and made all the congregation complain against them by bringing a bad report of the land, those very men who brought the evil report about the land died by the plague before the Lord. So, the ten spies who brought the bad report died. Everyone else, except Joshua and Caleb, will die in the wilderness. And the children of Israel will be delayed going to the promised land for 40 years. That's the current state of affairs when this partial begins. It's not a great state, right? I mean, here we were just about to go into the promised land. It was good times, and it went from really good times to really bad times. So, what happens at the beginning of this Parsha? The first three verses of this Parsha open the next scene in this tragedy. Numbers 16, 1 through 3. Now Horach, the son of Ishar, the son of Kothath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliav, and the own the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representative of the congregation, men of renown. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, you take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you call your, exalt yourselves above all the assembly of the Lord? Are the children of Israel going to accept their punishment and turn back to the Lord? No, doesn't look that way. They had already threatened to stone Joshua and Caleb, and uh, they wanted to pick a new leader and return to Egypt in the incident of the spies. So I guess it's not terribly surprising that they're still on that path, even after what happened with the Lord. However, even though some of these are the are some of the leaders of, of the children of Israel. We're talking about 254 people, right? 250 and then the, the four leaders of the rebellion. And we know from the census, there's 600,000 men and then their wives and children. So you think about those numbers, that's less, much less than one. It's a very small fraction, very small fraction. But they make it sound like they're speaking for everybody. That's often the case when a small group of rabble-rousers challenges the leadership of a congregation. What about the rest of the congregation? What about all the people? How did they feel about this? What did they want? We don't really know. <laughs> we have some hints from the, from the text, right? I mean, it does say that the congregation it sounds like they're sort of with them. But I imagine there's a lot of different thoughts and opinions, probably even among the 250 leaders. We certainly don't see unity even in Korach and the, the men from the tribe of, of Reuben, right? Not really sure. Their, their argument is basically, we don't, everybody's the same, but you sort of think like they want to be the leaders. <laughs> it's not really clear what their intent is, is it? So let's pause the story here because I think we can learn from these events. As it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, Now all these things happened to them, the children of Israel in the desert, as examples. And they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So, 
Let me ask you, how should we act when leaders do what we, don't do what we want to do? What should you do if your leaders are not doing everything the way we want to do them? Do we fight them? Do we badmouth them? Do we just leave? That's pretty common. It, it's so common, I, I've heard this with both churches and with synagogues, the man that's on a, on a desert island that he's been trapped there for dozens of years and, and, uh, and he's, they finally find him and he's showing them around the island all the things that he's done and, and he takes them to his synagogue and he says, this is a synagogue, this is where I worshiped every week. And there's a building a lot like it, a little bit more run down, sort of close by. And they say, well, what's that? He goes, oh, that's the synagogue you used to go to. You know, there's a lot of hopping. You know, that's, so, so leaving is probably one of the more common op- options. But does Scripture give us any insight into this situation? Well, I think Yeshua gives us an example of what to do. Now, why Yeshua? Look at Yeshua and his disciples. While they lived in Israel, while they went in his first incarnation, when he came to the earth, Israel was occupied by a hostile, non-God-fearing foreign nation, Rome, right? They, they were, the Romans were in control of the Israel at that time. The high priest was, I said, somewhat legitimate. My wife said, why did you say somewhat? And I said, well, because I didn't want to go through all the explanation of why he was illegitimate. <laughs> he, he was not a good high priest. He was not uh, the, the, the sons of Aaron, um, the way it's supposed to be. They, they had a more political problem at that time. So there were corrupt high priests at that time. There were leaders that were corrupt, and we know that too. So what did Yeshua do? Did he just take off and say, let's clean house. Let's, we're doing it. We're taking over the temple. We're putting priests back in. Nope, he didn't do that. Let's look at Luke 4, 15 and 16 to get an idea. And he, speaking about Messiah, taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on Sabbath day and stood up to read. So just as one verse tells us that he participated in the community, he went to synagogue, he worshiped with the people. We know that he went up to the temple, right? He didn't separate himself. He taught people, and he taught the truth. So, dividing or leaving is not always the best option. It certainly shouldn't be the first option. So, are there good reasons to separate or divide a community? Sure, there are good reasons. But good reasons for divisions, in my experience, are rare. I've seen a lot of splits or a lot of threatened splits. Very rarely is it done for godly reasons. What are the godly reasons? Well, gross sin. I mean, if they're sinning and they're winking at sin and they're allowing sin to happen, well, that's not kosher, if you will. You could also say not following the clear word of God. Sometimes people argue about minute areas of of Scripture Matter of fact, if you think about the different denominations that are, there are within Christendom, you can probably trace it back to some smaller, some, some issue in doctrine 
that they think, that's it, I can't worship with those people, I'm going over here, you know. And, and so we have thousands, thousands within Christendom. Judaism has its own thing. They have several different sects within Judaism. Interesting, when you get out away, uh, especially in Judaism, uh, when you get out away from everybody else and into an area where there aren't a lot of Jews, someplace, I don't know, like Oklahoma, um, you'll find that a lot of people with very divergent views, you might have normally a more orthodox group. There aren't any orthodox other than the Chabad, which is very specific group within Orthodox Judaism. Um, but you'll find that, that they'll worship together because, well, you just don't have a choice, right? I mean, if you want to worship, that's the group you've got. But I have a friend who's down in Norman, and he finds this in, in the, uh, the university. They've had an Orthodox rabbi there. He is not. We, <laughs> we called him kosher bacon when he worked with me because he was... Um, he did not follow any of the food laws, so he, uh, he was pretty comfortable. But, but he, he said, uh, he's Orthodox, but he's all right. You know, he, uh, he, he, he understands that we're not all on the same page, you know, kind of thing. So even if you disagree sometimes, I mean, we can probably find ways of working together. My point, I guess, in all this is that you've got to be clear about what it is you're doing and why you're doing it. And there's really a lot more in common than there is in, in reasons to separate. And a lot of times you'll see it's vanity or, or, or ego that, that people want to separate. You can get frustrated. I, I get that. And if, if any of you do get frustrated, as one of the others, please come and talk to us about it. I mean, I, I do, I'm willing to listen, and everybody should be accountable. That's not a question. That wasn't a question with, with Moshe and Aaron. I mean, they, they kind of vaguely accuse them of some things as you go through the story, but that really wasn't the issue. Uh, I'm not going to dwell on that quite a bit here. What I, what I do talk, there are some different goals, right? Sometimes you have a different goal. Now, I will say, I guess, in the case of Korach and Abiram and, and the other uh, Own, and I can't remember the other guy's name off the top of my head right now. Oh, Dathan, I'm sorry. You know, when the spies came back, the, the nation of Israel, God had formed them. He had taken them. He was leading them. I mean, they literally didn't move anywhere unless he moved. I mean, there's a pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. So, I mean, they went where the Lord said to go. And the Lord has already just said what's going to happen. And they're going to take now a while to go into the promised land. But they're headed to the promised land. It's just going to take longer now. Well, the people want to go back to Egypt. Well, there is a difference in vision. I'll give you that. So, they're, you know, maybe they have a reason that they want to leave. But, but again, they're going to try to take over the whole congregation. Uh, in this case, that, that's what they're trying to do. So, ask yourself, what are the reasons that Korach, Dathan, Abiram, and On give for this takeover? You know, when they come to him, at first it's just, well, nobody should be leader, right? There is nothing really specific, nothing really concrete. And if you think about the times you'll see this around today when there's a, a takeover, sort of the same kind of a thing. There's vague reasons. They don't do things the way I want to do it is largely what it comes down to. Or they're not leading the way I think they should lead. Or, and just keep filling out all those things. That's typically what it comes down to. And I know that it's been a few years now for us. 
Uh, we also had a dust-up a few years back, um, and uh, that was an uncomfortable time, and it was unfortunate. Um, but thankfully, we've come through it, and I appreciate that everybody's on the same page today. So, let's look at the counsel of Scripture on this. Let's look at Romans 16, 17 through 18. Now, I urge you, brethren, note those who cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord, Messiah Yeshua, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. Kind of some harsh words, but I do like the smooth words. I mean, when you hear smooth words, you know, you instantly get a kind of an image and, uh, and flattering speech. So, how do we change leadership? I mean, well, lots of ways happen that way, but really leaders are accountable to God. When Korach challenged Moses, his complaint against Moses was at first against, uh, for exalting himself above the others. Let's go back in, in 16.3 again. Let's just read real quick. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, you take too much upon yourselves for all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? So, let's parse that a little bit. Let's think about what, what kind of accusation this is. The accusation says that they exalted themselves again, above others. Exalted themselves. So, when you stop and think about that, what they're really saying is, God didn't choose you, Moses. You put yourself there. Same with Aaron. They kind of lump Aaron into it. Kind of feel bad for Aaron. He's really, you know, but um, in this case, God answers this directly with both Moses and Aaron, lest there's any confusion. I mean, it's already kind of been done several times before this, but I would think we're going to get a, an emphatic answer here. Let's look at uh, the results of this in Numbers 16, 28 through 32. And Moses said... By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of my own will. If these men die naturally like all men, or if they are visited by the common fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates a new thing, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into the pit, then you will understand that these men have rejected the Lord. Now it came to pass, as he finished speaking these words, that the ground split apart under them, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the men with Korah and with all their goods. A couple of verses down beyond that in Numbers 16.35, and a fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering incense. So, We've read this story before. We read it all the time. It's a dramatic event. It really didn't even answer the... It didn't stop them. They still complained. Incredible, I know. But it, in fact, the Lord has them take staffs from, from Aaron and, and it blossomed. And that, that seemed to calm all the argument, which is interesting that the Lord knew that that would. And the earth opening up and swallowing them would not. I, I guess... I, I want to stop here just for a moment to say that the Lord is in charge. 
Does he do that today? Do we see the earth opening up and swallowing churches and church leaders? But he's a God who doesn't change, right? So just as they were learning to trust God as they left Egypt, they were looking at the miracles that happened, and they were, then they had to fight, if you remember, with the Amalekites. And when Moses' arms were up, they won. When his arms were down, they started to lose. It indicates that God was with them and that God was in control at all times. But they still had to do work. And then they eventually have to do more like when they go into the promised land. They're going to do it without the presence of the Lord there, without the pillar of fire, without the, the fire and, the, and, and, and smoke, the cloud by day. But the Lord is still there. The principle is still there. The, the way it's actually taking place, and that's true today. And he's just as unhappy with the splits in the leadership as he was then. You know, so when you think about the earth opening up and taking these people, I think the, it's the same God who doesn't change. I think that his still, that's still, you know, the way he thinks about it. So let's go back to Yeshua's time. Now, he was, again, like I said, he was living under corrupt leadership. So what did he do? Let me bring up another verse in Matthew 4, 23. And Yeshua went all about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Well, that's more that we've talked about last time. But he's, he's in among the people. He's worshiping among them. He's blessing them, right? I mean, he's healing diseases. He's preaching to them. Now, at times, it is true that he conflicted with some of the leaders. They challenged him at times. But what did he do? He reasoned with them, and he did what was right. Let's look at, look at Luke 13, 10 through 17. A little longer episode, but... Now, he, Yeshua, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath which is where we're at, which is the same day. It was not to be unexpected, right? This is the normal course of events for the believing community. And behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity, 18 years, and was bent over and could no way raise herself up. But when Yeshua saw her, he called her to him and said to her, woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. It's a good event, right? But it doesn't stop there. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because Yeshua had healed on the Sabbath and said to the crowd, there are six days on which men ought to work, therefore come and be healed on them, not on the Sabbath day. The Lord then answered him and said, hypocrite, does not each of you on the Sabbath day loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it, for 18 years, be loose from this bond on the Sabbath. And when he said these things, and all of his adversaries were put to shame, and the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Now this is one of the many stories of when he healed somebody on the Sabbath. I do think it's interesting that he does subtly correct some of the false traditions or doctrine that they have, um, which gives us confidence on the things that he didn't change, that he was probably okay with them. But I do think it's interesting that, that 
He chose the Sabbath day to heal this woman. I have every confidence that he could have found this woman any day of the week, but he chose to do it on the Sabbath day because he knows what he's doing. Now, we know that he followed the law perfectly, right? So, he paid tithes and offerings. And you say, what's special about that? Well, he knew the leadership was corrupt. The tithes, if you'll remember in the law, meant to support the temple, meant to support the priests. Well, he knew they were corrupt. Matter of fact, the Essenes, I don't know if you remember the group, they, they separated themselves. They, they were some of the priests of Zadok, and they, they said, no, this is, what's going on there is not good. And they separated themselves out into their own community. But Yeshua didn't. He still paid his tithing. He still attended temple. He still did the, the, the feast when he was supposed to. We see many of the different things, the different incidents throughout the Scripture. You can actually see, almost track his ministry through the different feasts that he, that he attends. So things happen there, and we, we get little glimpses into his life during that time. Let's look at Luke 2, 41 through 42. This is one of the earlier times, and I think everybody will remember this. Um, it's one of the advantages of preaching about Yeshua. Everybody knows the story, right? His parents, now we're talking to Yeshua's parents, went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. That tells you something about the home in which he was raised. They were faithful. They did what they were supposed to. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. So that's one of the foot feasts. I bring this one up because, again, even as a young man, He's doing what he's supposed to do. His parents are teaching him this. He lives a little bit of ways, you know, in Nazareth. So it's, it's, it's a journey for them. But they do it because they're faithful. So if we're going to follow Yeshua's examples, what we should do is do good works and teach others to do the same. Even when we're upset with something the leadership is doing. <laughs> now, we're the, elite, we're the leaders held accountable by God. Well, certainly in Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and On, and the 250 men that were consumed by the Lord, the Lord answered that, and he certainly judged that. They were held accountable. In Yeshua's time, we don't see anything directly right then, but just 40 years after his crucifixion, the temple is destroyed, and it's destroyed for, well, to this day. Uh, not long after that, they were removed from Israel. The nation, all the Jews were removed from, and they were renamed by the Romans to Palestine. And that was true for nearly 2,000 years. Only in the late 1800s, they started moving there in larger numbers, and they became a nation, everybody knows, in 1948. So that was quite a, if you will, a judgment. If you want to not related to this incident, but I mean, was Moses held accountable by God? Moses wasn't allowed into the promised land. Neither was Aaron. So God does hold the leaders accountable. Maybe not the timetable we're interested in, but God's God, and it's more the timetable he's interested in than what we want, right? So let's... Um, let me, I guess I, I also want to reiterate that just as in the time of Korach, the leaders are still accountable today. And again, it's that same type of a thing. We may not see it. It may not be in our timetable. But we have to learn to trust God. We have to trust God that he will hold the leaders accountable. 
This is a lot like, and I was mentioning this backstage today, this is a lot like the, the scripture which says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. And that, we struggle with that, right? We want, we want justice. We want to take care of it right now. But God really does fight the battles if we will let him. If we jump in, sometimes we mess it up. Let's trust God. And in the case of leadership, I think the example that we have is pretty clear. Let's let God do it, right? That, that will, he'll take care of it. Let's look at some scriptures to back this up. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. And then in Romans 13, 1. Let every soul be subject unto higher powers, for there is no power but of God, the powers that are ordained of God. So God really is in control. Now for the remainder of what I want to talk about, I'm going to talk about when we have to make decisions, right? When bad things happen, and let's face it, at the start of this portion, bad things had happened, but they made it worse. Let's not make it worse. <laughs> when bad things happen and bad things will happen, those things sometimes are outside of our control. How should we react? We actually still have to make decisions. When the congregation threatened to stone Joshua and Caleb, everyone in the congregation had to decide whether they were going to pick up a rock, try to stop it, speak out against it, or leave, right? When Korach and the others told Moses they didn't want him to lead anymore, everyone in the congregation still had to decide whether they agreed. It's not like, like it could happen with, I mean, if, if, if they don't go along with it, it's not going to happen. So, when something bad happens, we have to decide if we're for it, we're against it, or we're willing to be swept along by it. These are event-driven. This is, we're talking about uh, something an event that happens, it's some bad event, right? Somebody challenges somebody. It's a time of testing. Usually you don't have a lot of time to think about it ahead of time. You've got to know what you're going to do. You get a little bit of time maybe to think about it. But this isn't the standard course of events. This isn't week to week that this is going to happen. It's sort of like as we prepare for, for various things, like, you know, somebody busting in. We prepare for those events, but that's not normally what's going on. It's not just enough just to think about the issue when something happens. We have to do something. We have to commit. We have to act. We either make a stand or we don't make a stand. If you let other people do it, that's going to be what your decision is, and you're going to go along with what they do. Now, I kind of have a rule, and this is, again, sort of silly for, for the seriousness of the thing that we're talking about. I like game shows. I like trivia. You'll sit there with folks that will play a game with you, and you're playing along in your head, and a question will come up, and then they'll give the answer, and they're like, ah, I got that one. I knew that one. That doesn't count in my house. You have to say it out loud before they do. Otherwise, it counts for nothing. Because a lot of times, we think we're on the thing. We might be still trying to decide between two things, or we couldn't remember exactly when they say it. We're like, oh, yeah, I remember that now. So it doesn't count unless you do it beforehand. You have to commit and this is the same type of a thing that's true. Now, let's get to something more serious, something more relatable. Um, we've been taking classes, and we're going to continue to do so to prepare for active shooter cases and things like that, um, because unfortunately, it's a reality in the society in which we live. One of the things they show us in that training 
is they show somebody like in distress in a public spot and people walk by and you see a lot of people looking at them. But it's amazing that they can lay there for hours sometimes. People won't do anything until somebody else does something. When somebody else goes up and helps, everybody kind of swoops in. It's like, oh yeah, can I do anything for you? It's weird. We are in our society, we're geared to sort of do what the other people are doing. Take somebody to act, take somebody to break that, to make a decision. Sometimes we can influence, sometimes we can make, it, you know, make something happen. So again, I think that we have to act. Korok and the others took action, the wrong one, but, but then still, the rest of the people still have to choose one way or the other if they're going to be affected, if not, and they did nothing to stop it. Other behavior affects us just as our behavior affects them, right? We can say, that, well, I didn't really want them to do this, but if they do it, you know, it's off the table. You've got to make a choice. That's the same thing with the children of Israel. They may not have been ready to, 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 to confront Moses and Aaron, but when somebody else does it, you've got to make a choice. You, you don't have to, or you don't have the, the option, the, the luxury of letting things, well, why don't we take this table? This will come back in three weeks. It doesn't happen that way. You've got to make a decision. So Moses did have to act when Korach and the others attacked him. It's unfortunate. He had no choice. The event was there. They were already ready to take charge. They came up to, you know, they, they, they were there with 250 men. He had to address it. Um, but again, we may be able to move things in one direction or another. But again, these were just events. These are just a one time. This is the test. If you remember back to, to, to classes, you usually got a lot of time to study before the test, right? Guess when that is? Well, that's now. <laughs> it's every day that isn't a test. <laughs> um, we engage in our community life. The more we engage with one another, that's when we make our decisions. That's when we build character, when we build reputation, when we build relationships. You find out who you can trust, who you can't, right? That's when, that's when you're making decisions. Um, let's look at a, a scripture that I think relates to this. John 13, 35. By this shall all men know ye are my disciples, if ye have love one for another. Think about this for a second. If we're not in a congregation, how do we show love one for another? We can't. It's a community life. We have to engage. And, and again, if we don't interact with others, if we don't talk, if we don't share time together, how could we say that, that we're like them? This is a I think it's a, a decent enough analogy. That's, I was growing up, I grew up in a town in South Florida. And I lived on a block, and my, parent, my mom's still in the same house I came home from the hospital to. So I, I lived there until I went away to college. Same house, same people, which in Florida is a little unusual. A lot of, a lot of transit, a lot of people moving around. And in high school, somebody asked me about one of my neighbors who lived across the street from me. His name was Mark Leslie. Said, is Mark a friend of yours? And at the time, I wasn't really hanging out with Mark, so I had to stop and think for a minute. And I thought, well, there are times I've really done a lot of things with Mark. We piled around together for a long time. There are times when we've ticked each other off and you know, we kind of fought with each other. And there are times when we just sort of existed in the same space. And it kind of hit me. And, and I, you know, as a teenager, I said, he's more like a brother. 
you know, I, I've known him my whole life. I've known him forever. I mean, sometimes I'm getting along with him, sometimes I'm not. But, I mean, if anything happened to him, I would be there for him, and I know he would be there for me. But we may not be hanging out with him all the time. That's what our communities are supposed to be like. We're supposed to know each other well enough that we can bear one another's burdens. It's a little hard for us because we're so separated because, well, because we're in Oklahoma and we're in a Jewish synagogue and there just aren't that many of us out there. Another scripture that comes to mind, Proverbs 27, 17. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. We all know those scriptures, but if you're not engaging with one another in a meaningful way, how can you say it's taking place? How can you say that iron is sharpening iron? You've got to converse. You've got to talk. Otherwise, people don't change. Everybody just says, hey, how you doing? Great. Wonderful. See ya. Nobody's changed, right? We've got to spend time together. So Yeshua, let's go back to the example of Yeshua because He's the perfect example. Uh, He was very involved. How involved was he? Well, the Pharisees would send scouts, if you will. They would send people to check and see whether or not he was actually the Messiah. It's sad and funny to read some of the reasons. They were like, yeah, he looks good, but isn't he from the Galilee? Scripture says he has to be from Bethlehem. And you're thinking, but he was born in Bethlehem. Anyway, but they they didn't get it. You know, there there are times when when they missed it. Um, but he was very, very active. Most of the stories that we have recorded of Yeshua was him doing something already, right? I mean, he was going to the synagogue on Shabbat. We see a lot of those. He was teaching his disciples. We see a lot of those. He was teaching a bunch of followers, Sermon on the Mount, right? He was teaching at the temple. He was going to the temple. He was eating, very mundane activity. He was eating with, with those who invited him over, because they wanted to talk to him. He was eating with his disciples. He was eating with friends. We see the story of, uh, of Peter's mother, who he heals from her sickness, and she serves with them. We hear, see the story of Martha and Mary and, uh, and Lazarus. I mean, they're, they're very intimate relationships. So everyone has different roles and responsibilities. I'm not saying we have to do everything. But we need to do something. If we just come and take off, and there are a lot of things to do. Uh, somebody, some people beautify things. That's not my gift. You know, there, there are people that, that worry about and think about it. I, I noticed this. This was a, a, a display that they did when Shavuot came, and it does look like fire. I thought it was very, really very cool. I appreciate it. I would have never thought of doing it, but I appreciate the fact that somebody else did. Some people organize events. That's not trivial. That's a lot of work. They usually have to get some other people involved. Some people set things up. Some people take care of sound. Some people take things down. Some people prepare meals and treats. And some people dance. Again, not my gift. Um, some people play instruments. That's very few people's gifts. We, <laughs> well, I'm glad we have people that can do it. It's really wonderful to have. We have a worship team that not only do we send some of our worship team off, we had enough that are here, and I can see people out in the audience who, who could also step in. We have a lot of actually musically talented people here. That's a wonderful thing. But we have to be involved. This has been brought up before. Let me go ahead and uh, use this scripture. Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord and not to men. We know that. We think about it, but we don't often 
think about how that applies to us. But if we're engaged and we're doing things and we're interacting with people, that's when we're doing something real. You learn more from doing than just from reading. That's just a fact. You cannot understand the difficulty or insights or joys without doing. I will tell you that when I, I did not always eat kosher, I did not always do everything I should do, I decided to try it to see why people did it. <laughs> why did God command it? And then I started learning a lot of things about it. It was really an enlightening experience. It really changes your life. I have a friend at work whose father teaches Sunday school at a church. He says, oh my gosh, when he gets to Leviticus, it's just painful. He just can't get through Leviticus. And I've heard that from a lot of people. I said, if you wanted to make it easier on him, tell him to try to live Leviticus. It changes the book entirely, right? If you actually try to do what God says, all of a sudden it's a completely different book. If you actually start thinking about what they were doing, it, it changes it for you. You know, one of the things is everybody says, well, that's such detailed. Then you start to go do one of the things. Let's talk about the feasts. We read the verses related to the feast, and then we say, wow, there's lots of different ways we could have done this. But here's where we have historical. We are a Messianic Jewish congregation. So what we do is we do the calendar that all of Judaism uses, except and, and we follow a lot of the traditions, except for they conflict. We obviously add Messiah Yeshua because we recognize he is God incarnate, as was brought out, but also he is our Lord. But, but there's a lot, of, a lot that has happened. I, I'm wearing a tallit, right? I mean, what are you going to find in Scripture? You're going to find out about tzitzit, right, in Numbers 15, 37 through 40. You're going to find out there and other places. They're going to say you wear the... the fringes on the corners of your clothes. And there should be a thread of techelet, which is what I have here. Don't actually have it on here. A lot of reasons for that. Could talk about them. But if you're not engaged in doing it, it would be boring to you. You wouldn't have any interest. The way they tie the knots, they have traditions for that. The way they wear them, the way what the colors are. It's over, worn over us like clothing, and it's worn over our, our um, even if we wear tzitzit, uh, with the Talit Katan, we wear the Talit on Sabbath because it puts us all in, in the same mindset. It brings us together. There's a community there. Uh, many times we read through um, the scriptures related to um, how lovely are your tents, O Israel, and the, when, they, when they were tried to be cursed, but they were not. You know, that's... Um, so that's just one small thing. But there's a lot of stuff that we do. We have banners in here. There's, again, the dancing with the Messianic you know, We have the songs. The style of worship, if you think about it, it isn't directly from Scripture. It was actually created in Babylon, the whole synagogue of worship. But Yeshua and his disciples did the same thing. All churches do the same thing. They come and they meet. They sing songs, hymns. I can tell you scriptures where well, that's what they were doing. They read from the Word of God and they expound upon the Word of God. All of that is from Scripture. All of it is developed traditions. All of these things are rich, but we have to do things. We have to experience them. We, because we're a Messianic Jewish congregation, we do some things that are unique. The Jewish community is like, eh, you guys act more like Christians. Christians say, eh, you guys act more like Jews. So we're kind of in a weird spot. You know, so 
we have to do the things that we do. Otherwise, nobody else is doing them, right? It puts a burden on a lot of people. If you only let one, pe- one or two people do it, not only is it a burden, it's not as much fun. You're not as invested. When you're doing stuff together, A, you have a chance to interact, but also you sort of catch the spirit of it. One of the things that we do is we want to connect with both Jews and Christians. Our mission statement, for those who haven't read the website lately, our mission from the website says, creating a Yeshua-centered community. Shalom and welcome to Rosh Pina, located in Oklahoma City. We are a Messianic congregation of both Jewish and non-Jewish believers in Yeshua, Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. Already you get a bunch of stuff right there, kind of throws the two-house stuff out because we recognize there are Jews and non-Jews. Consistent with the tenets of Messianic Judaism, Rosh Pina maintains a Jewish identity, heritage, and culture that reflects the faith and practice of the first century Jewish believers. Something handy there. We can go to the Brich Hadashah, and we can read, and we can see it in there. We can see what they were doing. Our heart's desire is to reach both Jew and Gentile with the good news of Messiah Yeshua and to help our Christian community to reclaim their rich Jewish heritage. All of that's sort of sim- simple. It seems like boilerplate, but when you actually start breaking it down into actually attending, how many people have heard different arguments with the calendar? Sure. It's hard to be in this for, for very long. I'm going to tell you one of the statements I use now. I've looked, I, I actually enjoy that kind of argument. I know that's weird, but I do. Um, but the bottom line is we use the calendar that they have agreed upon in Judaism since about 400 AD, Hillel II. It's, it's predictable because they started to being able to understand the motion of planets. There's some error in it that we learned over the last several hundred years. Won't affect us for a few hundred years more. We're okay. And if they ever need to change it, they will. All, all I'm saying is, you know, it, it's out there. And here's one of the great things that, that I that was said, and I think this is wonderful. God came up with these dates, and they're perfect. Then man gets involved, and there can be error. Accept it. Learn to live with it. Just let's worship on the same days. We all want to show up, worship on the same days, don't we? So let's do that. Let's not argue about those types of things. But again, like I said, if we're, if we're not doing these things, we can't connect with people. You know, if, if you never do Hanukkah, you have no idea, even though that's purely, you know, um, from the intertestamental writings, stuff like that, you would have no idea what other people are doing or what they're talking about. If you never do Passover, you know, I think most people do Passover, you know, but uh, my point is we should be engaged in all of these things. One of the things that I miss that people will do, think about some of the holidays, all the traditions and events surrounding something like Christmas, which we don't do here. I mean, they sing songs. We, we have whole sets of hymns. We have shows that come on. Back when I was young, they only come on once a year, right? But we know them. There are songs associated with it. It might amuse you to realize how many of them are written by Jewish uh, songwriters. You know, there, there's all sorts of things related to it. You, you can't hardly go into a store and you get swept up in the, in the emotion. But don't we do the same thing with some of our sports in this area? 
I mean, I enjoy the sports as well, right? But we do. We think about it. We see who the team is. We see what they're going to go against. We, we get excited when the games come, and we get excited. Wouldn't it be nice if we did that with some of the feast days? If we were just as excited about them as we were about football in this area, or as we were, you know, about Christmas or Thanksgiving, all of which are wonderful times, right? My point is, let's do stuff. Let's be engaged. That's how we're going to build character and relationships so that when the event comes, when the bad thing happens, we are better prepared to handle the bad thing. Does that make sense? I hope it does. This is, this is where I wish I was in a class and I could hear back from you guys. I'm sorry about them. Okay. And again, remember that we may be able to move things in one direction or another by our actions. So let me conclude with a reminder. When we find ourselves in a bad situation, don't make it worse. Let's encourage peace. Let me end with a scripture, Hebrews 12, 14. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Let's say a short prayer and then we'll have the Lord's Supper. Alvino Mokeno, our Father, our King, Lord, we are grateful to you for the blessings which you give us. We're grateful to have a congregation here to worship you. Lord, we ask that your spirit be among us, that we treat each other well, treat each other as you would have us by your spirit. And Lord, we also ask that uh, you protect those who are traveling and uh, return them to us. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the Shabbat message from Rosh Pinah Messianic Jewish Congregation in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. We would love to have you visit us. Our weekly services begin at 1040 a.m. each Shabbat, and we are located at 2600 Northwest 55th Place, north of Northwest Expressway at the corner of Northland Avenue and Northwest 55th Place. We meet each Shabbat for wonderful praise and worship with dance, liturgy, teaching, food, fellowship, excellent children's programs, and Bible studies on Tuesday nights. For more information, please visit our website, www.roshpinah.org. That's R-O-S-H-P-I-N-A-H dot O-R-G. You can also reach us by phone at 405-842-1967 or email us at info at roshpinah.org. Thank you for spending time in the Word with us today. Shabbat Shalom and blessings in Messiah Yeshua.